The gospel is the good news that by faith alone, our sin is imputed to Christ, and that by grace alone, His active obedience is imputed to us. As we saw last week, one of the issues that we wanted to bring clarification on was that in the Scriptures there are two kinds of verbs that are often used. One is indicative. That kind of verb is a statement about what God has done and who we are in Christ. The ones that speak about Him that are statements of truth. This is the Gospel. This is the good news. This is what we build our understanding of doctrine around. And then there are imperatives. The imperatives are the verbs that tell us how we are to live. Now, this is something that if we don't see it from the context of the gospel, will be simply law. It'll be law with no hope. It will be the perfect standard of righteousness that everybody is called to and that nobody can attain to. But seen through the lens of the gospel and seen through the power of the Holy Spirit, these become the guiding lights in our lives to help us live lives of obedience and holiness and gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. It's important to remember that no one obtains the benefits of the the indicatives, the, the, the true statements about being in Christ, by obeying the imperatives in their own flesh. Nobody earns their way into a favored position with God. Nobody works hard enough performs well enough, or even endears themselves enough to be brought in on any of their own merit. Essentially, if you believe what Christ has done for you, then you look at holiness and growth and maturity as a gift that's to be received. But if you rely on what you've done, if instead you, you look at your own life and you say, well, I've, I've been a pretty good person, I've, I've taken these good biblical principles I'm, I'm more moral now as a result. I just, um, I just want to be a better person. So these are good guiding principles in my life to improve my character and, and make me more virtuous. If you're, if you're going it from that perspective, then holiness is a prize you've earned. You expect some kind of credit for it. I, I used to be like this, but I tried really hard, and now I'm like this. And I believe I mentioned it last week. This is one of the problems I have with a lot of people when they give their testimony, let's say. They don't give a testimony about the gospel. They don't testify to the work of Christ. Instead, they want to talk about themselves. It's like a biography. I used to be this way, and now I'm this way. I used to be a really mean person, and now I'm not. I used to be an alcoholic, and then I dropped all that, and now look at me. I've got it figured out. And those might be a byproduct of genuine conversion. I'm not saying it isn't. But if it's the foundation for your confidence that you are converted, then you're looking to yourself, you're not looking to Christ, and your assurance will come or leave you based on how well you're doing, if how well you're doing is your indication of whether or not you're converted. However, what is true that we know is that genuine fruit of the Spirit, the the genuine changes that happen in you because of God indwelling you, is called fruit. And, And we know that there should be good fruit Jesus says that a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit, and you can't become a good tree on your own. The best bad trees still produce bad fruit. The only way a tree can become good, the only way a person can become good, is if they're made good. And they're not made good by working hard, they're made good because they're made a new creature 
a new tree, as it were. And so the good fruit validates the claim that, that, that we're regenerate. It validates the claim. We're saying that we are, and this is the proof. And that comes from the finished work of Christ. And that is received by grace alone, through faith alone in Him. And it is produced in us by the Spirit. It is not something that is produced by us as a new form of law to earn favor with God. Last week, we wanted to make it very clear that the fruit of the Spirit is not a new law that has come in in order for you to have something else to attain to, some other achievement to make, some other ribbon to earn, some other badge to accomplish. When I was growing up, uh, kids in our church, the boys in our church, went through a little program on Wednesday evenings. And uh, what you would do is you, it was kind of like Boy Scouts for Christians, I guess. And you would go through this thing and you would do these little exercises and you would get these little patches that, that you know, your mom had to sew on or your, your iron them on. And they had this like, little sash thing that around, went around you and you had all these little badges, you know, that you would sew onto the thing. And you'd, they'd have these annual gatherings and everyone would wear their little sash with all the little, little you know, um, what do you call them? Badges put on there. You can tell I didn't have many. You know, I'd show up at this thing, and I'm like, oh, no, I didn't earn that badge or that badge. I can't. You know me, I don't camp, right? Like, a lot of this stuff is outdoors. I can't start a fire. I can't do anything. No, I mean, if, if anything goes bad around here, if technology really does shut down one day and all that stuff, the first family to die will be mine. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, it's just not going to happen. Or at least maybe just me, because Catherine's really great at camping and doing that kind of stuff. But it's that, it's, that, it's that earning mentality, right? It's that go through the program, earn the badge, prove I've done it, get the reward. It's a prize. And, and I, it's so ingrained into us, I think, in our culture today, in our Christian culture today, that, that it's all about performance and earning and doing and completing something when it's already been completed. It's been completed for you in Christ, in His completed life of righteousness. And so, if there's anything that I hope we've taken away from the book of Galatians, it is to solidify and finalize once and for all the fact that it is not what we do, but what He has done that has merited our position before the Father. And that what we then do, because we are expected then to do and respond, is done out of gratitude and in His power and by His Spirit. In fact, one of the things that we need to remind ourselves all the time, and this is the main argument in the text, it's in your bulletin for you today. We're entitling this message, The Spirit of Life, and it is simply this, that life in the Spirit fulfills the law, and it gives us freedom to do three things in particular, freedom to restore sinners, freedom to do good, and freedom to boast in Christ to restore sinners, to do good, and to boast in Christ. So let's pick up where we left off, and we are going to look at verse 26 through 6-5 for the first part, which is to restore sinners. The Spirit fulfills the law. Life in the Spirit fulfills the law, and it gives us freedom to restore sinners. Verse 26, let us not become conceited, uh, this is set up in such a way as a verb that says it could happen. It's not a guarantee, but it could happen. 
He says, let us not allow this to happen, that we should become conceited. A, a word that is made up of two Greek words, which means empty glory. That you look at yourself as if you've got this glory, but there's nothing to it. You haven't done anything. You think you're important, but you're not. You think you've accomplished something, but you haven't. You're walking around like you're something special, and you're not. That's what it means to be conceited. And so obviously there would be this possibility that people are walking around thinking that whatever good works they've produced by the power of the Holy Spirit is nothing more than a result of their self-discipline and effort. And so it's critically important that you don't become puffed up in that way. I mean, Paul's clear about this in other passages. What, what's one of the things that puffs you up and makes you conceited? Do you remember what he says? Like, sort of like number one thing he says is knowledge. Knowledge puffs you up. When you begin to learn and you begin to grow and you begin to see these things clearly, the first thing that can happen to you is you become so proud, so puffed up, you, you look down at other people who haven't learned as much as you. You may also be the kind of person who looks down at others because they don't measure up to your moral standard. There's all sorts of ways we can become conceited. And it shows up a lot in the church, and he warns us about it. Because one of the things that conceit does is that it's provoking. That's the next part he says, provoking one another. It means to challenge somebody. It means to literally cause somebody to sin sometimes, to draw them out. You know, it's the mark of a, uh, a mature, settled, confident person that they're not easily drawn into conflict. It's the weak man, the impetuous man, the arrogant man who is easily called in to conflict. He is the one who quickly, if not immediately, responds insult for insult, tweet for tweet. The one who cannot bear to be criticized, when he can't bear to have anyone disagree with him, and they immediately fly into some sort of conflict. That's what it means to provoke somebody. And it's always the immature that are easy to be provoked. That's why parents are told not to provoke their children. You know how to provoke your children, don't you? You know how to push their buttons. You know how to say something or do something that causes them to respond in anger. Maybe you even know how to do that with your, your spouse. You know what to do in order to provoke a response. Well, here's what you need to understand. That's sin. And Paul calls it out. He says, don't you go resting on your newfound confidence in the Holy Spirit to say, well, then I'm just going to live any way I want. I'm going to walk around thinking I'm better than everybody else, and I'm going to prove it to them by provoking them, by accusing them of not being where I'm at. That's the one side of it. The other side is that it causes this. Notice, envying one another. It doesn't make them honor you. It doesn't make them respect you. It can make them envy you, which makes them want to tear you down. And the last thing you want to do is be surrounded by people that want to tear you down because of what has been provoked inside of them. And so Paul says that is not how it is to be within the context of the church. And so now, because he's talking about that, look at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. The word caught there is, again, it's a, a subjunctive verb. It means it could happen. He's not saying it will. But if it were to happen, if it were to happen, what would happen? That they would get caught. It means to be overcome by something, surrounded by something, and, and it's a transgression, a word that means a lapse or an accident, even a grievous sin. You know, I think the Judaizers would be the ones that Paul is talking about here. They'd accuse Paul of being the, the instigator of this. They would say, Paul, you came in here and you preached this, this gospel of liberty and freedom. You let these people do whatever they want. They don't have to follow the Mosaic law. And now they're going to get ensnared in all kinds of sin. It's going to happen everywhere. 
And Paul says, look, sin is going to happen one way or the other, but if they fall into sin, it's not because of the freedom of the gospel that I've preached. If they fall into sin, it's because they're still sinners, like each and every one of us. Those sins of the flesh he mentioned in the earlier section that we looked at last week, don't think that there's one of those that you're not capable of falling into. It's just the way it is. Until this flesh is glorified, we're always going to be battling it. And so Paul says, if you're caught in something like this, and somebody in the body is, look what it tells him to do. You who are spiritual should restore. Now, there's an imperative. There's an imperative. This is what you must do. You must restore that person. This word is very interesting. It's a word that meant to repair something or or join it together again or to mend it, like mending nets. And... um, the way I think about this is important because, you know, when you talk about this within the church and somebody who's come into a sin, it is most often the case that people say, if there's a sin that somebody is ensnared in, we've got to go in there and we've got to make sure that we focus in on the sin itself and remove it. We've got to get right in there and figure out what is the sin and remove it once and for all. Where's the damage and let's get rid of it. And here's the challenge with that. Um, what Paul doesn't say is if somebody gets hit with an arrow, you need to pull it out gently. He didn't say that. He says if somebody is, is trapped in this transgression, restore them gently, mend them, put them back together again. Um, Greek language uses sometimes to, to talk about a, a bone or something that was out of joint. He doesn't say when you deal with this person, just amputate the limb. Rather, take the time to, to mend it, to fix it, to adjust it, to bring it back into the place it needs to be, because generally the sin is a manifestation of something else. The sin is the symptom, not the root cause. The root cause is addressed when we deal with somebody in a gentle way and restore them back by showing them what it is they've been chasing after because they've got their eyes off of Christ. That's the kind of transgression that can happen. That's how you spiritually restore them. And notice that you do it in a spirit of gentleness. Isn't it great that it doesn't say, um, you who are spiritual, which just means if you're a believer, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of judgment. (laughs) And yet that happens all the time, doesn't it? Happens all the time. People think that the way they show that they're serious about godliness is to be as harsh as they can possibly be because they take sin seriously. He doesn't say, you who are spiritual, you should restore them with a spirit of shame. You let them come back in, but, you know, they've, they've, got to, they've got to sit in the corner. They've got to earn their way back in. They're on sort of probation for a while to make sure that we're really serious, make sure they've repented enough. He doesn't say that you who are in a, a spiritual should restore them in a spirit of anything except gentleness. Put the person back together again. The one who comes to you broken and repentant. This is not the unrepentant person. This isn't the one who goes on sinning with no regard whatsoever for God's law. That's not who we're talking about. You can't restore somebody until they are coming back in a spirit of repentance. And when you see that, you restore them in gentleness. And you do that literally while considering yourself. It's not a separate sentence. It's not a separate imperative. It's a participle. It means that you're restoring while you are actively, presently considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Tempted to do what? Well, you could be tempted to sin. Uh, You could be tempted to engage in what they're engaging in. There's certainly wisdom in being careful. You could also be tempted, I guess you could say, to be an abusive overlord. You could be tempted to go around being the, uh, the holiness cop, 
going around telling everybody uh, the ways in which they're not measuring up to your standard of godliness. He says, be careful lest you're tempted. Instead, verse 2, bear one another's burdens. This again is an imperative, we're told. We have to bear one another's burdens. It means to, to literally take them up and carry them. It was, it was used of uh, somebody who had a load that they had to carry, a literal physical burden, something that you would put maybe on an animal that was working. And he says to take these burdens and bear them with one another. And this is really, really critical. If you go back to, to Romans chapter 15 and verse 1, just keep your finger in Galatians, but Romans chapter 15, verse 1. This is, this is one of the places we can go to, to really understand this more, more completely. Romans 15 and verse 1. The whole section really beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14 and all the way through is critical, but, but listen to what he says in verse 15, kind of as a summary. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Do you believe that you have an obligation to bear with the failings of weak people? The question we'd have to ask ourselves is, do we believe that we have an obligation to bear with the failings of weak people? Or is it something where we say, unless you meet a certain bar, unless you are spiritual enough, unless you are mature enough, then you're simply not welcome here? All of Romans 14 is a discussion of that battle that was going on in the Roman church because you had weak brothers and you had strong brothers. You had brothers and sisters that would not eat meat or drink wine, and you had brothers and sisters who would eat meat and drink wine. And to the meat eater wine drinkers, you are not allowed to despise those who will not join you. And you, teetotaling vegetarians, are not allowed to judge the people over here. And they went back and forth and said, you are just as sinful if you judge the eater and drinker as if the eater and drinker despises the other. You're just as sinful. There is no better standard. One's not better than the other. He ends the entire section in Romans 14 by saying the main thing you need to make sure of is that each of you are convinced in your own mind that this is not a violation of God's law and that your conscience is clean. That's it. And so if we import that into the situation there in Galatia, this is what you have. And he says, bear with one another's, or bear one another's burdens. Help that weaker person carry his burden. Pick up the person who has been crushed by these modern-day Judaizers. No one is more vicious. No one is more brutal. No one is more, more um, oppressive than a person who wants to tout some higher standard of morality and impose it on someone else in the church. I promise you. I've been watching this for a long time. No one is harder to deal with than a person of that nature. And so what he says here is that you need to be careful to bear with these people who have been crushed under the weight of the Judaizers who forced them to get circumcised, forced them to conform to the dietary laws, come alongside them, bear their burden, and in that way, what do you do? You fulfill the law of Christ. It's this organic obedience that comes from you. I love the way that one writer put it. 
Riddlebogger put it this way. He says, in context, this would mean the law of Christ is the spontaneous obedience wrought in the heart of each Christian believer by virtue of the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and as such, the law of Christ stands in direct contrast to the law of Moses, which demands perfect conformity to its every stipulation. The law of Christ is the spontaneous obedience that comes from being filled with the Spirit. The law of Moses is the hopeless effort to earn favor with God. And so the author says, if you want to fulfill the law of Christ, come alongside that person crushed under the burdens of the law. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something, if anyone has a high opinion of himself, if anybody is not willing to accept the weak and not willing to help bear their burden when he is actually nothing, meaning he's supposed to be a servant of everybody, he's dependent upon God just like everybody else, He's not even able to take credit for his good deeds. If you think you're something, meaning that you don't even want to help somebody, and you think somehow you're special and you're more righteous, this is going to cause a problem. Paul isn't trying to crush your self-esteem here, but he says you have to understand you're nothing. The Westminster Confession puts it this way. Under the heading of good works, we cannot by our best works merit pardon of of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins, but when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and our unprofitable servants." And because as they are good, meaning our good deeds, as those deeds are good, they proceed from His Spirit, and as they are done by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Brothers and sisters, the argument is that whatever is done in us that is good, the fruit of the Spirit, is by the Spirit, so we can't take any credit for it and we can't be uh, conceited about it. And every so-called good work or deed we do in the flesh is actually evil, and it will never take us one step closer to God. In fact, most of the time, it will render us idolaters of our own standard of morality. And so he says, if you who are nobody, if you who can rely only on the Holy Spirit for good, is not willing to help anybody else, then you are deceiving yourself. He deceives himself, literally deceived from the inside. And this is why it's so important for us to be involved in the regular worship of God's people assembled on the Lord's Day. This is why in Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25, it is God's perfect law and requirement of believers that they gather together in person on the Lord's day for the purpose of spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Why is it critical for you to be present? Because the ordinary means of grace through prayer and singing hymn songs and spiritual songs and the reading of Scripture and the preaching of the gospel and the witnessing of the testimony in baptism and in the Lord's table are the ordinary means of grace by which people are spurred along to love and good deeds. And when one isolates themselves from that, the only person they listen to is themselves and they become grossly self-deceived 
to the point where they even think they don't really need the body of Christ, and they can go weeks or even months without being within corporate worship. That is a self-deceived person. That is a person who is nothing but thinks they're something. And so, connecting this in verse 4, he goes on, but let each one test, literally to approve, his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. You know, he's going to see that it's Christ in him who is working. He's going to be able to look at his own work, and these are the works that are done by the Holy Spirit, and then he has reason to boast in himself, not in himself meaning like I did that myself, but in himself meaning he knows that what's in him is the Holy Spirit working these things out. So, so make sure you understand what he's saying here, because you might come away with the opposite impression of what Paul's getting at. He's not going to say, look at your own works and evaluate them and determine if you yourself did them in your own strength. He's saying, look at your own works, evaluate them, know yourself well enough to know that no good thing can come from you, and then therefore give praise to God for what he has done through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about. And he says, you'll have reason then to boast in what God is doing through you, confidently living in the grace of Christ, and not focused on your neighbor, either puffing yourself up because of how much help you think you were to them, or even worse, being filled with pride as you snoop around trying to find fault with your neighbor. Again, beloved, the context is Judaizers. They were going around trying to find the people that didn't live up to the standard that they had set, and as a result, they thought themselves to be superior. Why? Verse 5, because each one of you need to bear your own load. You've got your own personal cargo to carry. There is a personal responsibility in a healthy Christian church, meaning that you are to be convinced in your own mind of that which is true from Scripture. Your conscience is to be clean. You are to live in grace and mercy with the people around you. You are to show tolerance to those who are not as mature as you. You're not allowed to judge. You're not allowed to despise. When somebody repents, you restore them, put them back together again patiently and gently with grace. Wouldn't that be the perfect kind of church to be a part of? Amen? That's what we're aiming for, everybody. I don't know what you think we're aiming for. Um, you know, we're not out there trying to be something, you know, here in North County, you know, competing with other churches. We're not trying to be some global phenomenon. We're trying to be a church that ministers here to the members of this fellowship in a way that exalts the glory of the gospel through the patient and consistent obedience that we express out of gratitude to the Lord, and then the patience we show with others as they struggle to do that. So life in the Spirit fulfills the law, and it gives us freedom to restore sinners. Number two, it gives us the freedom to do good. This is in verses 6 through 10. Let the one who is taught the Word, word logos there, let the one who is taught the Word share all that is intrinsically good, all these good things with the one who teaches. Now, this is going to seem a little bit self-serving at the moment, but it's right here in the Bible. Uh, so I've been waiting to get to this verse for a long time. Uh, this, is, this is an imperative, okay? Uh, it is literally an imperative, but this is important. It says that the one who is doing the teaching and the one who is receiving the teaching, they are to share all that is good with each other, all the good things. What that means is that you, as the congregation, need to be good to your teachers, and you who are teachers need to be good to those whom you teach. And there's a mutual and a reciprocal grace and kindness that is shown. 
Now, Paul expands this out a little bit further in other books that he wrote to other churches that talk about looking after the people who teach in terms of compensating them, in terms of protecting them. Paul tells Timothy, you've got to make sure that even those who bring accusations against them are not allowed to do that without due process. There's many ways in which the congregation needs to look after those who have been not only gifted but, but called for the purpose of teaching and preaching. Uh, they are to be highly esteemed. They are to be submitted to. They are to be obeyed, not because they themselves are better people, but because they bring the holy Word of God to bear on His people. In fact, not only are they not better, but they actually are to be the servants of all, and they're not to do anything in a way that would lord it over the people or be abusive. It's very sinful for a person who's in a position of spiritual authority to use that authority to hurt the people that are under their care. Peter makes that clear in chapter 5 of his first epistle when he says that elders are not to lord it over the people, but rather they are to serve in humility and gentleness. But just think about this for a moment. This is not just some utopian vision. This is actually the way that the church is to function. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, a church body that loves and honors and submits to and respects and provides for the people who are responsible for bringing God's Word to bear on them and a group of teachers and preachers that have the best interest of that flock in mind as they lovingly, patiently, gently care for them, even sometimes by bringing rebuke and correction, all for the goal of seeing us live lives or bring glory to Jesus Christ. That sounds like a pretty good setup, doesn't it? That's exactly the way that the New Testament church is supposed to function. And yet, we've established ourselves in a position nowadays where teachers are becoming increasingly hostile and increasingly defensive. They're the ones that are putting more and more distance between them and the people that they're teaching, sometimes literal physical distance, and sometimes just this ability of not, uh, this thing where they're not able to be reached. They put handlers between them and the people. They put all these obstacles there. They don't want to get any close to anybody because they feel like they're going to get hurt, uh, they're going to get criticized, and they're very insecure. I've told you this before. Pastors are generally, generally like a really insecure bunch. I had dinner Friday night with a couple of pastors, and one of them was, was telling us that he went to a, a recent pastor's gathering uh, that many of us in North County are invited to, and I've never gone, but he went one time, and, and these pastors just sat in a circle, and he said it was just this one, it was just like a complete um, uh, uh, fraternity of misery. That's my term, not his, but that's it. He was goes just whining and crying and complaining and woe is me and everything's so hard and, you know, and, and it's just like, where does that come from? Well, you might come from the church, but it might also come from a complete misunderstanding of the nature of the calling. You see, it is your responsibility to boldly proclaim that which is true, but it is also the church's responsibility to receive that as from the Lord. You also have churches that are on a hair trigger ready to fight about anything. And so you've got this terrible situation going on in a lot of places. But what Paul says to the Galatian church is in the midst of a situation where the context, remember, is Judaizers coming in and trying to rip up that church. He says, you all need to be on the same team. Congregation, teachers, you've got to be on the same team. You've got to be pulling in the same direction. And so, he says, that is what's going to cause you to grow in a way that is honoring to the Lord. Let the one who has taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. This is just a simple proverbial statement. Now, this is not karma. He's not saying what goes around comes around. 
He's saying that this is what happens when you sow something, when you invest something, you should expect to get a return, and the return is going to be negative if what you've sown is negative, and it's going to be positive if what you've sown is positive. And so the illustration breaks out a little further in verse 8. For the one who sows, and this is a present active word, present active verb, the one who is presently, actively, habitually sowing to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. This is the definition of an unbeliever. Unbelievers are the ones who constantly, continually, habitually, and unrepentantly sow to the flesh, and they reap the corruption that is theirs. But the one who sows in the same way, presently, actively, habitually, consistently to the Spirit, is the one who will from the Spirit reap eternal life. To sow to the Spirit is to walk by the Spirit, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to fulfill the law of Christ, as we saw before. And from that person, the Spirit will grant this eternal life. This is a statement about your conversion. It's an indication that you belong to Christ. Remember earlier, it's those spontaneous, organic manifestations of the Spirit's power in the life of the one who has been made a new creature. Now, is that going to be a challenge in a sinful world, in fallen flesh? Absolutely. So he says there in verse 9, but let us not grow weary. It could happen. Again, it's a subjunctive verb. It could happen. You might at times be tempted to grow weary of continually doing good, but if you do in due season, when God is finally finished with his program, you will reap. Do not give up. In the original, it doesn't say, if we do not give up. That's not in the original, because that almost implies a condition. Like, you'll get there to the end if you don't give up. But if you give up, you might lose your salvation. You might lose the prize. If you trip five feet before the finish line and you give up, well, then you're not going to get it. That's a really misleading translation. It doesn't say that. What it literally says is, for in due season, season we will reap not giving up not giving up. Why? Because God said that I'm going to be faithful to persevere you all the way until the end. The one who belongs to him is going to complete it. That he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to what? Complete it. It's always going to happen. It's part of the perseverance of the saints. So, verse 10, so then, here's the the summary of what it means to do good. So then, Since we're getting there anyway, he would say, that would be like a a way of communicating the meaning of that conjunction. So, since we're getting there anyway, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially in particular to those who are of the household of faith. The priority is your, your local assembly. The priority are the people around you, your church, the people that you share your life with. He says, especially those who are of the household of faith, they're more important to you than the outsiders. Paul even says in another book, I don't even judge the outsiders. I don't tell them how to live. I'm speaking about the church. I'm speaking about you. You care for one another. Rebuke one another. Challenge one another. Teach one another. Restore one another. Forgive one another. Why? Because you are all in some way or another tempted to wander, and you need somebody to bring you back. Do good to those who are within the household of faith. 
Life in the Spirit fulfills the law, gives us freedom to restore sinners, gives us freedom to do good to those who are around us, and then finally, to boast in Christ. This is 11 through the end of the epistle. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Usually Paul dictated his letters, maybe because he had always had a problem with his eyesight or with his his hands, we don't know. But in this case, he is clearly doing it himself. He is writing. These are large letters because he can't see very well or large letters because he's trying to, to make a point. He's saying, I'm writing this with my own hand in large letters. Make, make note of it. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So here he's getting to the motives of the Judaizers. And I would argue by extension the motives of anybody who wants to impose law on you. The best way for them to get away from the persecution that comes from the scandalous teaching of the free grace in Christ is to put some kind of legal boundary around it to show at least you had something to do with it. You see, the cross is scandalous. Uh, The cross is such a such an impossible thing for the world to understand. The cross is so detestable that it's one of the things that does keep people from coming to faith in Jesus Christ because what seems to be presented there on the cross is so cruel and so unfair and so unjust and seemingly so unnecessary that in their human logic and in their human wisdom, they can't bring themselves to embrace that because as one atheist famously said, it would be like embracing spiritual child abuse. Why in the world would I embrace a religion that said that the infinitely powerful, wise, and holy God of the universe sent himself to the world to take on the flesh of sinful men and then crushed him for sins he never committed in order to give his holiness to people who had never deserved it? You couldn't make that up and sell it as a religion. It doesn't make any sense. It was in violation of everything in Greek philosophy, Roman philosophy, and Gnostic philosophy. It was against everything in the day when Paul said it, and it's against everything today. And so instead of trying to bear up under the shame of that to say, no, it's absolutely free. In fact, he even regenerates you and makes you a new creature so that you can believe because your, your regeneration precedes your faith. It comes first, and only God can do it. So God chooses you before the foundation of the world. Then he regenerates you through the power of the Spirit. Then, because you're made alive again, he gives you the faith to believe and the ability and desire to repent. And then he clothes you with the righteousness of Christ and then makes you an equal heir to his infinite kingdom. That doesn't make any sense to the world. That's too easy. That's too easy. But what they're really saying is that puts too much of the work and the glory on God and not enough on me. What they're really saying is I don't appreciate not having some part in this. I don't appreciate not having some kind of merit to contribute. 
And so when the Judaizers come along and they meet a person like that, it's a seductive message. They say, Paul preached this gospel, but it was a little too loose. Yes, embrace the forgiveness that you've been given through grace in Christ and add these things on to prove that you're serious. And Paul says, if you do it, they've won. They've won. You've given them what they wanted. Now they make you look like you're following their Mosaic law. They make it look like you're just becoming a Jew, and they've got you circumcised, and they've got you obeying all these laws, and as a result, they can fit in just fine. Listen, people, the problem that the Judaizers were facing is that if they embraced Paul's gospel, they would be rejected by the Jews. And so what they offer Christians is a way for you to be accepted at your local synagogue while still thinking you believe the gospel. They're saying, here's the plan. The Jews hate us because we've embraced Jesus Christ and we've said that there is no need for us to be circumcised or obey the law. Here's the deal. What, we rec- what we're going to recommend is keep Jesus, but just add back the law. It'll be fine. They don't need to know. Go to the synagogue, go to the festivals, get circumcised, play along, be like one of them, and you get the best of both worlds. You get them both. You get Christ and you get accepted in the culture. You know, that's the basis of voodoo. (laughs) I was in Haiti not too long ago, and one of the problems that the pastors were facing there is that people would come to church on Sunday and they would go to the voodoo temple on Wednesday because they wanted both. They wanted the gospel they were hearing at church and they wanted acceptance in the community through the voodoo worship. And the pastors were constantly trying to tell them that you couldn't have both. This is just what's going on in Galatia. These Jews are coming along and saying, if you don't want to be persecuted, just embrace both. And Paul says it doesn't matter. Look at verse 13. For even those who are circumcised don't themselves keep the law. (laughs) They want you to sign on to the Mosaic law. They don't even keep it because if they're going to earn favor with God through the law, it has to be perfect. It has to be continual. It has to be them individually doing it to earn their salvation. And Paul says no one's doing that. What do they really want? Look at it. Verse 13. They desire to have you circumcised so that they can boast in your flesh. Look at what we made them do. They're one of us. We get the credit. Now we can be in both camps and be accepted by everybody. There it is, folks. You understand why it was so appealing? I think it would be appealing. If I was getting persecuted because of the stand I was taking and embracing this crazy new religion called Christianity centered around a a murdered uh, person who had tried to have a rebellion against Rome to set up his kingdom. And people are telling me now that he rose from the dead, and as a result, I could be saved. That'd be pretty crazy, wouldn't it? It made no sense to people. Nobody worshipped the religion of somebody who wasn't there. Every time there was a rebellion, every time there was a new savior that came in to release the Jewish people from the bonds of Roman occupation, and that person died, all of their followers scattered. They just looked for the next Messiah. This Messiah came, was killed, but rose again, and now you're going around telling people he rose from the dead and you're still following him. It makes no sense at all, which is why he says in verse 14, and here's the key, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) That's it. That's, That's the whole message, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my only boast. That's all I've got, folks. He says, that's it. I'm not going to come to you with anything special. I'm going to literally keep talking about the cross of Christ over and over again. 
He's not saying it's the only thing I ever mentioned, but he's saying everything I mention is based on that, on this one act. It's the cross of Christ and salvation through him alone that I'm going to always boast in. It's my only hope. It's my everything, which is why he says, by which, meaning that gospel, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What does he mean by that? He means by that that everything that the world and its various religions would put forward as an alternative gospel, everything in philosophy, everything in the world religions, everything else that someone puts forward as a way back to God, every kind of earned righteousness has literally been crucified. It's sort of a double meaning, right? It's been nailed to a cross. It's it's a vivid description. You take that, that personification of philosophy and you pick it up and you put it up on a cross and you nail it there until it dies. And of course, in the same way, Christ himself on the cross is the alternative. All of those other ways die on that cross, and the one who died on the cross rose again, and that's your way. Because when it comes to religion, verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision. It's literally irrelevant. Any Jewish practice that is performed after the resurrection of Jesus Christ is utterly and completely irrelevant. None of it is going to improve your standing. I've only met a few of them, but I have met Christians that thought that they would somehow be in a better standing and more obedient to God and a better Christian if they adopted Jewish tradition, if they adopted a kosher diet, let's say. That's a deceived, confused person. Absolutely nothing in Mosaic law needs to be added to you as a Christian in order to complete you. You are complete in Christ, which is why he says circumcision doesn't count for anything, uncircumcision doesn't count for anything, but, strong contrast, a new creation. What's that new creation? It's when the Spirit takes your dead soul and makes it alive again. And so as he concludes in verse 16, as for all who walk by this rule, the rule of the gospel the rule of the new creation, not the rule of religion, regeneration, not reforming yourself, the gospel of grace and faith alone, whoever walks by this rule. Remember the walking illustration and imagery from earlier a couple of times? Same here. Whoever walks and continues and follows in this new creation, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He's not making a distinction now between Israel and the church. It would be ludicrous for him to do that. The whole context is that he has been trying to show there is no difference. There is no distinction. The context forbids it. He's talking here about true Israel. Romans chapter 4, verse 12. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 8. We talked about this at length when we went through that book. He says, all Israel is not Israel. He's saying uh, it doesn't matter if you're ethnically Israel or if you're ethnically a Jew. It doesn't help you in any way, shape, or form when it comes to your standing with God. He says, the true Israel is the one who has embraced the gospel, the one who came to fulfill the law. There's only one people of God. Back in chapter 3, 28 and 29, he said, there is no Jew or Greek. There's no distinction anymore when it comes to those who are in Christ. Refers to this new creation, this regenerated one, the ones who have that spirit indwelling them at conversion. The Israel of God is not made up by those who are circumcised. It is made up by those who are in Christ. This is a direct show of force against the Judaizers. A direct show of force against the Judaizers. And so, verse 17, 
This is my life verse. 17a, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. No one really asked me to sign stuff like the celebrity guys, but like if I ever was asked to sign something, and I actually did, you know how those guys put a little verse underneath it? This would be my verse. Be like, John Rourke, Galatians 6, 17a. They wouldn't know what it was. They'd look it up and they'd be like, huh? What's Paul talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, on one level, he's like, okay, enough is enough. Like, I'm, an, I'm tired of this. I don't want to keep fighting about this. I've already been beat up enough, as it were. And in another sense, he is saying, Judaizers, that's it. We're not going to talk about this anymore. I'm not going to have this dialogue anymore. I'm not going to debate with you anymore. The next time I show up there, I'm going to come in as a force. I'm not going to simply tolerate you going into the church and trying to rip it apart by all of your adding of the law. So when he says here, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. Don't look at him as feeling sorry for himself. Look at him as saying, no longer is any of this t- trouble going to be tolerated. You've had your warning. You've had your explanation. The next time I show up there and I find people teaching this, it's going to be a war. Because the gospel and the health of the church is worth fighting for. The last thing you want to be is in a church culture where, there's, where nothing's ever important. Nothing is ever worth fighting for. Conflict never occurs over doctrine. Expectations are kept low and muted. There's no expectation that people even really know and understand and can explain the gospel. You want to be in a place where those things are held so precious that they are worth fighting for. There are things worth fighting for. Amen? Thank you for that amen. From the mouth of babes. Why? Because he says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. He goes, I've had enough abuse for the gospel. I've already been through that fight. I've been through that war. I've got the scars to prove it. You think I'm not going to fight you? I'm going to come back and I'm going to fight you. I'll take you out. I'm over here in Corinth praying imprecatory psalms about you right now. I've, I've, got, I've got the battle wounds. I've got the scars. I'll fight. I don't like to. I don't want to, but I will. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Enough abuse has come against me. I'm going to bring it to you if you keep causing trouble for me and for this precious church. And so verse 18 wraps it up, pivots to this blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He's talking there to the the brothers, as you can see. Peace be with your spirit, brothers. He's not saying, you know, strength be with your flesh so that you can obey the law better. He's saying grace be with your spirit because it's difficult sometimes to obey these things, trusting in the Lord. It's the same thing he said to Philemon in the last verse of that little letter when he tells him to do something really hard, which is to obey Onesimus, and, or <laughs> obey Onesimus, to forgive Onesimus and bring him back. He says at the end of that little letter, you know, may the grace of May God's Spirit be with your spirit. He says the same thing here. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. And then says at the end, truly. That's what amen means. Truly. This is true. And if He is with you, if He is with your spirit, you will not be those who cause trouble and you will not allow the troublemakers to bother you. You will walk by the rule of the new creation that the Spirit of God has transformed you. 
You won't be tempted to go to the world's system of religion or philosophy or self-help. You will be the ones who boast only in the cross of Christ and not the law or circumcision. You'll be the one who does good deeds, and you look for opportunities to minister to others within the church, knowing that even in so doing, you are encouraged more in that. You are not going to be the ones who look to yourself for your own confidence, but you are going to avail yourself of the fellowship of the believers on a frequent basis, regularly, weekly on the Lord's day, to engage in the ordinary means of grace that you might be strengthened. And as you're strengthened, you won't become proud and arrogant looking down on the people who are weaker, but you will help bear their burden, being reminded that you're no different than them. And that in the end, what matters is that you live with a clean conscience before the Lord who saved you. And in so doing, you will destroy all the envy and bitterness in the church, and you will not become a conceited, arrogant fellowship. This is the message to the Galatians, and this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, thankful for this word that you've given us today thankful for the amazing way in which Paul just unpacks for us so much of the doctrine that helps us to understand the situation that the Galatian believers were facing and that we're facing today. Uh, We know that we live in a world that is hostile towards us, but sadly we also live in a Christian community that can sometimes be against us those who would hold us to some standard of moral conformity or external self-righteousness, those who would like to impose law, those who would like to coerce us into trying to obtain merit. So, Father, I pray that this local assembly here, this body, uh, would be protected from that, that we would fight hard uh, against the things that you would have us fight against, that we would take sin seriously, and that we would not tolerate anything that would be a compromise of your standard, but that we also, when we ourselves fall or when the people around us do, be those who are first to receive that repentant person back in the spirit of grace and gentleness. May gentleness define and describe us in the same way that it described you, calling those who were bearing that impossible burden of the law and saying, come to me, come to me, for I am gentle and lowly. Take my yoke because it is light and my burden is light. I ask that we would model and imitate you in that regard by the power of your Spirit for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.